Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with David Glantz from the Refugee Action Collective and we'll be speaking with David about an ongoing court case that has happened in regards to an activist and Refugee Action Collective member, Chris Breen, who has been charged with incitement for being one of the organisers of a COVID-safe car convoy protest on April 10th, 2020, calling to free the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and others similarly detained who came to Australia under the Medivac legislation. And we'll be speaking with David about the court case and what's been happening and what is the charge of incitement and looking at the implications of that for activists. And listeners may recall that last year, the Doin' Time show did a series of, of interviews in regards to repression and the law and the right to protest. And that was with Mel's. So, yeah, have a look at that sometime and looking back. And that was actually during lockdown. And the second interview that we'll be concentrating on, we'll be speaking at 4.30 with Marianne McKay, who is a First Nations woman, um, an activist, and we'll be speaking to her. She'll be in Western Australia, and we'll talk to her about suicide with Ab- in Aboriginal children and deaths in custody. But also, I wanted to say that before that interview, we'll be doing a pre-recorded piece that Peter has prepared in regards to Mamia Bujamal, who's an American political prisoner and journalist, and he has COVID-19, so that's really important material. But first up, we'll now be speaking with Chris Breen. Oh, sorry, um, with David Glantz about Chris Breen. I beg your pardon. 3CR Behind these prison walls There's a man who's won awards for the work that he has done. Tune in at 9.30am Thursdays to hear a special series, Home Run for Julian. Join James Brennan as he tracks the campaign to bring Julian Assange back to Australia, starting on the 18th of March. This special four-part series will feature interviews from Julian's dad, John Chipton, and other tour participants. Follow the convoy from Melbourne through regional towns in New South Wales and Victoria and back to Melbourne. Thursdays, 9.30 till 10am. Home run for Julian on 3CR. Is someone who is a hero to whistleblowers everywhere. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.04. And I'd like to welcome Glance. What David Glance to the studio. Hello, David. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Marissa, for having me on again. I seem to have difficulty introducing you today, probably because as I've been talking about Chris Breen's court case, I've had him an image of him in my head, and then, <laughs> and then I organise for you to. But you you need to speak on his behalf, I think, or someone does, because otherwise it'd be really really contempt of court, I believe. Yes, certainly. Uh, Chris would normally be very happy to talk about 
anything to do with the campaign for refugees, but because he's the person uh, facing the charge, he's been advised by his own lawyers best to say nothing, but uh, that doesn't stop fellow RAC activists like myself speaking up on his behalf and uh, explaining the situation. So I'd like to once again welcome David Glantz to the, um, the radio show, speaking about Chris Breen on his behalf in regards to some ongoing charges that have been happening. So could you just explain to listeners, David, the background of what's happened with Chris since last year in regards to the charge of incitement and what does it mean? Sure, sure. Um, well, last year, as everybody will remember, as we went into uh, you know serious um, serious concerns about coronavirus, we were all worried. But refugees locked up in the Manta Hotel were particularly worried. They were um, confined to their bedrooms with no fresh air for 23 hours a day. There was a constant succession of security guards coming through the building with shift changes. And, they, and these were men, or these are still men, with um, medical conditions who were very, very worried that they were sitting ducks for coronavirus, um, that they would get it, it would spread like wildfire. And so they wanted to get out into the community and the Refugee Action Collective was campaigning for them to be able to get out into the community where they could socially distance and also start to you know, rebuild themselves a little bit uh, after seven seven years of detention, now eight years for some of them at the hands of the government. So we organised a car convoy. It couldn't have been safer. Everybody was going to be one person for a car, maximum two if they were from the same household. People would be putting signs on their cars, driving past the mantra, beeping their horns and telling the refugees that they weren't forgotten. We were there for them uh, and that we were keep, going to keep on fighting for them. And the police response was incredibly heavy-handed. Um, of the people who drove to the Manta, they pulled up um, a good number of cars and they issued 30 fines. That's $50,000 in all. So it was like a military operation in Hotham Street in, in, in Preston. But Chris didn't even make it to the rally. He was arrested at his home and held for nine hours at Preston Police Station. Um, his computers and phones were taken and he ended up being charged with incitement. And incitement is encouraging somebody else to commit a crime. Um, and listening into the court cases over the last few months, uh, when Chris has been facing court, I've discovered that incitement is very, very new in the political scene, but has been around for some while in connection with very serious crimes, usually murder or kidnapping. So if you and I meet down the pub and I offer you $5,000 to go and kill somebody, I'm inciting you to commit a very serious crime. And, and obviously I can be, you know, uh, I can be prosecuted for that. But Chris's crime, so-called, was to post a Facebook event saying that the car convoy was taking place. And the police are arguing that posting that Facebook event made people uh, leave the house in a way, and at a time when they weren't meant to be leaving the house, and therefore Chris is guilty of, it, guilty of inciting that crime. So we've had a succession of court cases. The most recent one was last Wednesday. Um, this is in the Magistrates' Court. And last Wednesday, the two sets of lawyers faced off and made their final legal arguments. No more witness statements, just legal arguments. That ran for three hours. Um, the defence is arguing essentially three separate defences for Chris, and if any one of them is successful, then Chris will get off. The first, and in some ways the most political one, is arguing that leaving the home to go to the mantra was showing care and compassion to the refugees in, in the mantra, and under the health directions at the time, it was legitimate to leave home to offer care and compassion. It was, by the way, also legitimate to, to leave home and go to Bunnings. Um, and if you got in your car and driven to Bunnings, you would have been legal. If you got in your car and attempted to drive around the mantra, you were hammered with a, a fine of $1,652. So that's the first defence, is that what people were doing was reasonable and legal, in which case Chris wasn't inciting a crime because no crime was committed. 
Then there are more technical arguments over the timing of the Facebook posts and also arguments about whether there were other factors that led to people taking part in the car convoy, not just the Facebook post. And then the third round of argument is around what's called the elements of incitement and what actually, um, in legal terms, is incitement and what does the prosecution have to prove. I have to say, I'm not a lawyer. That final section, I can't really get my head around. So I can just say that the defence is being put forward, but I can't tell you exactly what the defence is. But it's interesting that, you know, in speaking about incitement, it's usually a serious criminal matter, probably even addressing terrorists. And it's quite vague, really, for this particular court case, isn't it? In particular because protest is legal. So how can, you know, incitement be an action that's, you know, that's conducted in accordance with criminality? Well, protest is legal, but unfortunately for most of the last year in Victoria, in practice, it's not been legal. Uh, And the government has been very flexible about basically helping people who make profits um, get people into venues, football football stadiums, cinemas, theatres and the like. So if it's about getting people out and about for a dollar, then the government has been quite supportive. But it's been very clear that the government, I'm talking now about the Victorian state government, has had mm. no interest whatsoever in allowing uh, protests to take place, even though the chief health officer himself said it is 20 times safer outdoors than indoors. So you think back over the last year, despite the government, many of us have been on the streets many times. We were on the streets for Black Lives Matter. We were on the streets for Invasion Day. We were on the streets last Monday uh, for for March for Justice. Some of us have been on the streets multiple times for refugees as well. There has not been one single case, not just in Victoria, but around Australia, not one single um, uh, uh, proven case of transmission of COVID resulting from a street protest. But the government has treated street protesters as if we're sort of, you know, gangsters, hoodlums and, you know, lunatics. Um, So actually, strictly speaking, it's not been legal to protest. And that was one of the things that um, uh, uh, Fiona Patterson from the Reason Party and... um, and the Greens raised in negotiation with the government over the state of emergency. Um, but the reality, is, uh, the reality is we're still no closer to actually having a right to protest. Like most things that we think we enjoy as rights, we actually have to exercise them. We have to be on the streets. And the Refugee Action Collective has been out um, on the streets safely all the, way, all the way through. And we've tried to make sure that we haven't ended up with more arrests and more fines, and we've been successful in that. But we have been on the streets many, many times for refugees. And by the way, I really would encourage everybody listening to join the Palm Sunday Rally for Refugees. It's coming up this coming Sunday. It's 2 o'clock at the State Library. Um, I know it will be COVID safe, but we want it to be as big as possible. Thank you for letting us know that. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it, that Chris, Chris's case has been going now for almost a year, since mm-hmm. last year. Like the, the, It's taken a very long time. There's been quite a, a few court cases here with a lot of cross-examination, a lot of witnesses. It, it's taken a long time, I think, because in the end, uh, it's taken a long time because this is, this is novel. Incitement charges are not normally heard in magistrates' courts. As as I said, most of the lawyers, when they're batting backwards and forwards about case law, they're talking about incitement to murder or incitement to kidnapping. Incitement to get for somebody to get in their car and drive around a hotel, that's never been tried before. And I think it's very clear that the police are trying to use incitement as a general way to crack down on protest. They've used it against Chris. They've used it against a number anti-lockdown protesters. I'm told they threatened incitement charges against Extinction Rebellion uh, activists for the um, the action in the uh, intersection outside Flinders Street Station uh, uh, late, late, late last week. 
and they're trying, I think, to make incitement a standard weapon. In the old days, you, if you were at a rally, you just you got you got uh, arrested and you were charged with obstruction. You know, it was pretty much standard. They throw it in just to make sure that there was something uh, on the record. I think they're moving to try to make incitement something which they can use regularly. And that won't just be against refugee activists, environmental activists, exactly. uh, anti-secularism activists. The union movement is at quite great risk because if, a police, if the police decide that a particular picket line may be, in their view, um, illegal, then the person who calls for that picket line, um, activist, uh, rank-and-file activist, official, organiser, whoever, could then be charged with incitement. And I think this is an attempt to intimidate people. It is intimidating. And very quickly, I just wanted to read out, and it's actually a quote from one of the media releases in regards to Chris's court case. So this is public knowledge. And it says that the police prosecutor, Anthony Alborde, acknowledged at the contest mention that using the charge of incitement in this way was a novel prosecution and there was no existing case law for it. In other words, police are attempting to create novel law to restrict the right to protest. Yep, and, and that is why one of the reasons why this has dragged on for so long is because nobody involved in the case, neither the magistrate, the prosecution or the defence, has done this before. So they're all exactly. feeling their way. Um, I think it's fair to say that everybody's aware that there's a lot of um, attention on this case. We've had up to 45 people log on uh, online and w- watch the court proceedings um, you know, for, hours, uh, for hours on end. And the court itself is very aware that there's attention. So this is, this is essentially a political case. And if Chris... Um, is if the charges against Chris are dismissed on Monday, and by the way, that's when the court sits next, the magistrate is coming back with her verdict at 9.30 Monday next week, the 29th. Um, If she finds Chris not guilty, there's a very good chance that the police will appeal. And if she finds Chris guilty, um, there will then be arguments around constitutional matters about the right to protest. And I'm confident that Chris will be appealing against any guilty verdict because the stakes are very, very high. Long after Indeed people have forgotten are. Chris's name, and certainly they've forgotten my name, uh, long after that, then if incitement is around and being used as a stick to beat activists over the head, we'll all be, a much, we'll all be much worse off. So we're not going to let this one go. We will fight it through to the end. Will he be going to prison? Does, does one go to prison if they're charged with that? Apparently, under incitement, the penalty cannot be greater than the penalty for committing the crime that is being incited. So, yeah, if I incite Deal. you to kill someone, then I could go to prison for life. If I incite Fair you heaven. to drop it's a cigarette packet on the street, then I can be fined for littering. So the irony of it is the worst penalty that Chris can get is a fine of $1,652. But, of course, they'll have a criminal conviction against his name. And he's a high school teacher. Uh, and that it's, can have implications uh, for his ability to do his job. It's going to set a dangerous precedent if it does happen. Just to clarify, though, to listeners, that the police prosecutor did not mention that there should be a right to protest. I want to actually emphasise that he only acknowledged at, at the contest mention that using the charge of incitement was a novel prosecution and there was no existing case law for it. He did not actually say <laughs> that, that um, we have a right to process. I couldn't imagine a police prosecutor saying that, could you? I, I couldn't. Um, and off the top of my head, yes, I mean, the, the High Court ruled some years ago there's an implied right for political uh, uh, opinion in the Constitution. But of course. I'm not aware of anything written down that says we have a right to protest. I think our no. right to protest is the right are the rights we create by protesting. I think it's absolutely, absolutely. crucial that whatever cause, um, you know, listeners are involved in, that you shouldn't be intimidated, that you should be out on the streets because, um, you know, Zoom, Zoom public meetings, you know, we've had to live with them for the last year, but the reality is there's nothing like seeing people marching down the streets. And that can be done safely and it can be very, very effective.
Absolutely. So tune in to the 29th of March. I believe it's by video conference. Um, there will, and yeah, there will be a Facebook event put up by RAC. That will include a link to the, okay. um, to the, to the video. Uh, I'm pretty sure we actually have a meeting uh, tonight in about two hours' time, but I'm pretty sure tonight we will agree that once again we'll have a protest outside the court in solidarity with Chris. We've done that for the last three hearings, so I think it's very yes. likely... Uh, and people can check on Facebook, but it's very likely we will be outside Melbourne Magistrates Court in William Street from 8.30 uh, in the morning next Monday. David, thank you so much for coming on the program. In a minute, we'll be, we'll be concluding our interview. But just before we do, I just wanted to make a quick announcement, and that is that next, next up, we'll be um, doing a piece that Peter has prepared in regards to... Mamiya Bujamal and COVID-19. And I want to wish Chris the very, very best for the court case, David. Thank you very much. I'll make sure he knows that. Thanks a lot. Thank you, David. No, no worries. Take Pleasure. care. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And welcome to the Doing Time show. Um, I'm Pete. Um Marissa's doing the show as well. Um, I'm just going to play a few podcasts of um, Mami Abdul-Jamal, but just before that, I'd like to do an introduction and um, listen to what's happening with him. Um, so Mami Abdul-Jamal, health emergency. Mami has COVID-19 by the Jamal Journal. Mami Abdul-Jamal is internationally renowned journalist from Pennsylvania inmate and a former um, Black Panther. While he considers to be a political prisoner, is now experienced, experiencing a health emergency. Mamiya Abu-Jamal's doctor, Dr. Ricardo Alvarez, explained each of the four primary elements of Mamiya's that Mamiya is suffering from COVID-19, congestive heart failure, liver cirrhosis, and the worsening of severe de deliberating chronic skin condition. Uh, for, for more information on this, go to www.liberationnews.org slash keep up the fight for Mamiya. No to COVID medical neglect slash. Now, this is a brief um, intro to, to Mamiya. So, Mamiya Abu Jamal was born in Wesley Cook, April 1954, in the USA. Mamiya is a political activist and a journalist who was convicted of murder and sentenced to death in 1982 for the so called murder of a Philadelphia officer, Daniel Faulkner. He became widely known while on his well on death row for his writings and commentary on the criminal justice system. In the United States in the United States after numerous appeals his death penalty sent sentence was overturned by federal court. In 2011, the prosecution agreed with um, to sentence for life imprisonment without parole. He entered the general population earlier the following year. If you want to know more about Just Mamiya, go to www.freemamiya.com and there's um, lots of um, campaigns happening there and so-and-so, so and there's more information on him. Now, we'll go to um, some podcasts from Prison Radio. The American way of fascism. Look at the crowds savaging the walls and halls of the U.S. Capitol. Who are they? Where did they come from? Well over a decade ago, an American journalist saw them and wrote about them. Chris Hedges 
who once wrote for the New York Times as foreign correspondent, covering wars, famine, and fallen states, published a rather remarkable book in 2006 entitled American Fascists. Its subtitle, The Christian Right and the War on America. Tracing this American religious strain from 16th century Calvinism in Europe, Hedges goes deeper and examines this movement's inner motivations. Hedges explains, the movement is fueled by the fear of powerful external and internal enemies whose duplicity and cunning is currently at work. These phantom enemies serve to keep believers afraid and in a heightened state of alert, ready to support repressive measures against all who do not embrace the movement. Chris Hedges. When neoliberalism rose to power in the 80s and 90s, it did so on the backs of the black poor, whom it consigned to the prisons, and to many white workers who lost their manufacturing jobs and the worlds it gave rise to of rising wages, and were shuttled off into the struggles of NAFTA or the North American Free Trade Agreement. They were swept into worlds of wonder, of high-volume faith, and to war against the wealthy. It's American Christian fascism. That's what Chris Hedges calls it, y'all. And it can only get worse. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu. Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. When is a trial not a trial? A question. What happens at the beginning of a trial? The answer is simple. Jury selection. Why? Because jurors decide cases. Therefore, special attention must be paid to whom the jurors will be. Consider, therefore, the so-called impeachment trial. How members of the Senate perform as jurors, or those who actually decide guilt or acquittal. Before the trial formally began, a clever Republican, Senator Rand Paul, Kentucky, threw a monkey wrench into the proceedings by submitting a motion challenging its very constitutionality. The motion drew 45 votes, the vast majority Republican, who voted overwhelmingly that the trial was unconstitutional. Today, the trial is in process. And who knows how it will end? I don't. If I had to guess, I'd say it'll end the same way that the first impeachment trial did, with acquittal. And that's for political reasons. This is, after all, a political process. But I must add, I don't know what will happen. No one does. We shall see. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. A trial that wasn't. Whole lifetimes have passed, and until recently, few have seen a presidential impeachment trial. What have we seen? We have seen politics at play, or as the Rasta say, polytricks. 
for from beginning to end, all important decisions are based on politics, not truth, facts, evidence, or procedures. There are really no rules, except the rules all sides agree on. And Trump does it again. The great political scientist, Alexis de Tocqueville, visitor to these shores from France, praised members of the Senate above members of the House. Perhaps he should have seen an impeachment hearing that would have changed his opinions. For Trump dominated the Senate no less than a Roman emperor dominated his again. From Imprisoned Nations, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And you're back with the Doing Time Show. Um, yeah, there are a few samples of um, Mumia Abu Jamal. Um, now I'm going to play some um, some impris- um, prison radio um, snippets, like commentaries, but not from about Mumia, but um, about the virus and. Um, but um, I just want to play that um, those snippets from Mumia because it's um, very vital if he gets out of prison. Um, he's di- dying of COVID basically, and um, it's quite shocking. Um, sure, sure, there's other people with the virus too there. Um, yeah, in America, it's quite full on over there. All right, we'll get to this one now. My name is uh, Omar Skiali, a.k.a. Edward Sistrunk. I'm housed at SBI Cold Township in Pennsylvania. The topic today is the virus. Currently, the percentage of the coronavirus at SCI Cold Township is small. However, it's still harmful to both the prison staff and the prison population. Adding to the concern of the virus, or the parole violators being brought to this facility directly from the street. This concern for the virus is the fact that when smoking was permitted, the filters in the ventilator system were not secure enough to provide protection to the populace who didn't smoke. Thereby, the variants with the virus only enhanced the concern because the droplets from sneezing or airbound. And if the ventilator system didn't keep the tobacco smoke secure, how can prisoners be assured we are not at further risk of the variants via the ventilator system with inadequate filters? I assure you, there's wonderment whether the virus is another means for society to rid itself of black people, since the prison system is somewhat parallel to the outer society, primarily with black people and credence can be given for concerns for the virus by utilizing historical data from institutionalized diabolical schemes, such as the all-white jury, which are utilized to convict black people nationwide in court. The diabolical scheme is parallel to the Tuskegee syphilis experiments on black people, and it's well known that white supremacy don't mind eradicating other whites to maintain power, history, and recent history attest to that. Return to yours, Omar Ali. Thank you. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. This is Mr. Quincy Jones. My uh, CDCR number is B as in boy, I as in Indio, 9263. I am currently housed in CDCR, New Folsom, in California. I have recently been a victim of police brutality, actually correctional officer brutality. You have to be very specific about these titles, especially when you take into account all that's being done out there on the streets, the protesting and making a stand to say that mistreatment of people of color must come to an end today. To see so many white people protesting in solidarity 
for the cause is very humbling to a person like Quincy Jones. Recently, as I was saying, I was a victim November 10th at New Folsom on Sea Yard um, officer uh, uh, brutality. I was uh, thrown to the ground while handcuffed on my right eye. Um, I, I suffered uh, a severe trauma to my right eye. And I was also, um, uh, according to San Joaquin Hospital in Stockton, California, they said I had a uh, broken left shin. Um, my uh, my knee, uh, my left leg injury is still, uh, you know, causing me a great deal of pain at this time. Uh, from November 10th all the way until recently, as a week ago, I was housed in the shoe program. Shoe program meaning uh, basically uh, you get one phone call a week, and if you want to go to the yard. You do it inside of a cage like an animal. I feel that that was very wrong for them to do me like that. Captain Conrad also felt that it was wrong for them to do me like that and wanted them to give me more phone call usage, but they refused to listen to the captain. So Quincy Jones' treatment at this facility, uh, I feel, is uh, very uh, unfortunate. I see a lot of things going on. Uh, to help uh, uh, the abuse that's taking uh, place on the street. But I don't see a lot of people standing up and making um, noise for what's going on behind these walls, these prison walls, these jail walls, because um, a lot of abuse uh, is, is, is actually happening in here. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, a lot of people, they probably don't want to tell their stories, but I think these stories need to be told. I think uh, a lot of people around the world are listening right now. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And I wanted to now welcome Marianne from WA. Hello, Marianne. Welcome to the program. Hey, Claire, sis, how you going? Oh, not bad, sis. Exhausted, if you want the truth. <laughs> it's been a, <laughs> a big year so far. <laughs> yeah, Marianne, and we're only in March. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? There's a lot of hard work involved in activism and broadcasting and all sorts of stuff, isn't there? Mm, yeah, it's never-ending. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, and I know this is probably... I probably sound really repetitive, but... I, at the beginning of each interview, I always like to ask where where one is from in, in in terms of the land, because you never know if there are new listeners that have tuned in. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, yeah, well, I'm a Noongar from the southwest of WA, um, and so my tribal group are Wajak, and within Wajak country, I'm a Yorgabilia, which is just a woman of the river. And we go out to the salt water as well with the beach. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, if you, what did you, what did you think is the best thing to talk about today? I was thinking we should perhaps talk about maybe your own concerns at the moment. What are your concerns at the moment? Um, well, we've got you know a lot of mobs still passing away um, through suicide. There's been a number of them in the last couple of weeks um, right across WA, um, young people. 
Um, and deaths in custody and the treatment of our people within the prison system and, um, you know, by the hands of the police, especially our young ones, is always a huge issue, you know. And our young ones being perse persecuted in the community, like social media is a real big... Um, is really guilty of doing that with a lot of ignorant people who don't know the facts and what's going on behind the scenes. And we've got to sit there as parents and and read the crap that people are saying about our kids, you know? Uninformed opinions. Well, it sounds a lot more than that. It sounds like racism. Oh, well, it is. Um, and just today I was on the phone to the local police and just saying that one of our local chat pages, um, it's actually racial vilification, which is against the law, and we have racial vilification laws in WA. And the police officer, she was like... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you if you're yelling at me. And it's like, I'm not yelling at you. I'm raising my voice because you're frustrating me. Like, how old are you? And how long have you been in the police force? Because from where I'm standing, it's like you're not even educated with the racial vilification laws that exist in this country. And she just put me on hold and put me straight through to her sergeant. And I'm sitting there thinking, you ignorant woman. Mm. You know, she didn't sound, as, you know, she didn't sound much younger, um, older than my son, who's 21 this year. You know, oh. but that's the mindset of our officers. Yeah, and it's, you know, I'm sick and tired of social media being, you know, and you report things to Facebook and they just say it doesn't breach their community standards and it's like, well, hang on, we're blocked. Our mob are blocked nearly every day for minor crap, yet people can be so racist and persecute our young ones and they get away with it. So anyway, that's just what, been what what's really frustrating me today. <laughs> Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, a lot of people don't really understand about suicide anyway. It's already got, you know, a very... There's so so much ignorance about suicide. And then, yeah, yep, and yeah. social media has a lot, has a big impact on that, especially with our young ones, you know, and the bullying and the harassment. Tell me a little bit about what's happening in WA with, with um, you still child there? suicide among your people. Hello? Oh, are you still there? Can you hear me? Marianne? Marissa? Yeah, can you hear me? Hello? I think... Hello? We, we may have a bit of a technical difficulty here. Marianne? 3CR. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR hoping that we have Marianne back. What, what happened? I don't know. You just cut out. Yeah, I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me. No, I was just yeah. going to ask the question, but I was going to ask the question because we were talking about social media and I'm sure listeners would have heard all that. So I think it just happened towards the end yeah. that we got cut off. But yeah. I just wanted to ask the question, What um, can you tell us a little bit about what's happened with, you know, child suicide in your neck of the woods in WA? And and among your people, like, why do you think this is happening? These children are so young. I I honestly don't know how to answer that, Sis. You know, like, I, 
our young ones are dealing with a lot of trauma, whether it's bullying or, you know, harassment through social media, bullying at school, you know, the intergenerational trauma, you know, and pressure um, growing up, you know, from the stolen generation and the impact that that's had through the families. Um, you know, you have young ones that are having relationship problems, you know, so there's a whole range of issues. Um, that are impacting on our young ones. And it's just scary because we don't want our young ones to normalise this behaviour and think that whenever you're going through something, this is the way to go, you know? And there's not enough... Like, there's a real lack of um, support out there for our youth. There's a real lack of um, healing programs and um, there's a lack of outreach you know, and the Department of Child Protection, they siphon more funding into removing children from their families rather than putting it into, you know, um, family support. So I think it's something like 83% of the funding goes towards child removal and about 17% into family support. And that is just a totally unbalanced... It's not even 50-50. You know, and that's something that the government need to look at because our young ones are the ones that are suffering and it's just not fair because they're our future. And not only that, young children are, are, are criminalised as well. Like, there's a lot of talk at the moment about raising the criminal responsibility of children to 14 years. At the moment, it's 10. And yeah, and I can't... Like, my daughter... My daughter is nine turning 10 and I couldn't even imagine her being in that kind of situation and placed in Bankshire, like the trauma that it puts on these parents and these young people when they're that young and they're being treated like little criminals. You know, like they're kids and kids make mistakes. And so I fully support, you know, the age being lifted to 14. But what I support even more is an end to youth detention and kids being placed into healing centres where they can get support, you know, and, and training and encouragement to move forward and deal with whatever they're going through that's making them act out, you know, because a lot of things are poverty-related. And you can't go, um, you know, criminalising people out of poverty-related situations. Like, that's just unfair when we live in a first-world country that's just a real rich nation where no-one should be homeless or starving or being put in a position of poverty, you know? Everybody should be right. For sure, and it, it, it just seems to me that a lot of these laws are, are geared more towards, you know, Aboriginal people that are marginalised. Well, that's right, sis. And when you look at the Bankshire Hill Detention Centre, which is our youth detention in WA, it's the only youth detention centre. So you've got mob coming from two to 3,000 kilometres away being put in a youth detention. It's a total cultural shock because a lot of these kids would come from traditional communities you know, away from their families, none of that support for visitation and things like that. And what, 70 to 80% of the kids in that in that centre are Aboriginal youth. And then out of that 70 to 80%, half of them kids are under the care of the Department of Child Protection, which is our welfare here, our family and children's services, you know. So it's like... If half of those kids are under the care of the state, well, what are the state doing? They're supposed to be removing kids for their own safety and welfare, aren't they? Yet exactly. they're, being, they're ending up in Bankshire. So it's like the system is failing our kids and they say that we're failing our kids by neglecting them. But it seems to me that the state is neglecting our kids more than anybody in the community, you know? Just ripping kids off their families and traumatising them even more. Well, it's still happening now. It was happening in 1788. 1788, yeah. and, and it's happening again. Yeah, and Kevin Rudd said, sorry, in 2007, and child removal is happening at a faster rate than it did back in the stolen generation. So yeah. the government said, sorry for nothing, you know, and just got worse. They said, oh, sorry for taking your kids, but we're going to do it even more in the future, you know? Well, we need to... The government needs to actually walk its talk. Well, that's right. And they need to... If they really care about the welfare of our kids, that funding should be redirected to keeping the families together. And they should have family support centres, 
you know, residential family support centres where the mum and the dad and the kids can all go in there at the same times and be housed in different facilities on the site so that they can work together as a family but also as individuals as well, you know? And it makes sense. That's why the government won't do it because we're an Aboriginal industry. They make too much money off us. You know, we need a big restructure of the... A total restructure. Abolition. Uh, abolition and and it replaces. Yes, and they need to listen to the people on the ground. You know, they need to get down on the ground with the people that are affected because I'm so sick and tired of these black academics, I call them, you know, like these academics that are black fellas, like black academics, and they sit in there at the table at the decision-making level and them fellas don't get on the ground with our mob. So they don't even know what the heart of these issues are and the way that they're impacting our people on the ground. Like, the government needs to get our community elders at the table talking about these issues and what are the best ways forward because our elders are the ones that see this on the ground all day, every day. So they're the best ones that have the best knowledge and are the most educated to put proposals forward to make things better, you know? Yeah, and I remember we were talking to a, a couple of weeks ago, you and I, about the deaths in custody, recent deaths in custody that were hardly even reported on this year. There were three, and there was yeah. one from Victoria, I think. Yeah, the government just... It's getting to the point where they're just kind of ignoring it, and it's like there's a media blackout, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, they don't want to report on the failures of their government you know, and the fact that they haven't implemented these recommendations because it gets the people talking and it shines a light on the government and their failures, you know, so they don't want to report it. And as soon as something happens, like us mob get all messages, oh, who was that? What happened? You know? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, and it's like, oh, we can't talk about it. We don't know if the families have been notified, you know? So you have the concern in the community... And, you know, people are just worried everywhere and especially want to do welfare checks on their mob that are in prison or in Bankshire in the youth detention centre, while the media just sit there doing all these stories about stuff that doesn't even affect people's lives, you know, like all their little warm and fuzzy news reporting. And it's like, no, that's not the reality of our lives. This is the reality of our lives. People are dying in custody. Children are suiciding. Children are being removed. People are homeless, you know, in a, in a state that shouldn't have any form of homelessness, you know. And people are suffering, you know, there's a lack of primary health care. Like, there's so many issues that our people are going through that should be reported, but it's like, oh, that's all right, that's just them blackfellas whinging again. And it's like, well, look at why we're whinging again. We don't stop because you don't start doing anything, you know. Well, it's... It's, it's not really about whinging. It's it's about you've got to be able to advocate for your people. Well, that's right. But they look at it like we're just whinging, like we're just whinging blackfellas. And it's like, no, we're trying to stand up for our rights here because yous aren't doing the right thing. You know, it's exactly. called holding them to account. You know, where's the accountability? What do you think about yeah. these these new laws in, in, in regards to coroners that you know, that um, deaths in custody inquests have to be done in a timely manner. There hasn't been much reported about that in the media either. No, well, there what? It takes two to three years for a coroner's inquest. So you've got the family being traumatised at the, the start when it happens, and then they're doing their healing and their grieving, and then they've got to wait a couple of years for any justice. And then when the coroner's inquest does come, there's a lack of justice because the coroner always finds in favour of the police or the prison or the health services. And when Mr Ward passed away and we had his inquest in 2009, the Warburton elder from WA here, one of the coroner's recommendations that should have been implemented into law was the coroner's recommendations need to be mandatory so that the government have a checklist that they check off on and that the DPP should be forced to lay charges when the coroner recommends charges be laid. And that was 12 years ago. And so now you've got these new laws that they're trying to propose, and it's like, 
Well, they should be done in a timely manner, but where's the funding going to come from and are the government going to honour that? Because two to three years for an inquest is just disgusting. And if the government, if the coroner has a backlog, well, that just shows that something's wrong. Why is there so many inquests needing to happen? You know, because they're failing people again. Exactly. And I think what's, what is happening now is that they're, they're wanting, the government's wanting to do it a speedier process, but how's that going to happen if there's no funding? Well, that's right, you know. It's like, are the government going to be committed to having them in a timely manner? But then, are the government going to make those recommendations mandatory at the same time? Because the coroner's inquest, these recommendations or her recommendations, are always just another tabled report put up on a shelf and forgotten about. Because the majority of recommendations are like the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. They're not implemented and they're just ignored. You know, and so things happen again that could have been prevented if that coroner's recommendation was put forward, you know? Exactly. And the DPP can just say, nah, I'm not prosecuting anybody, like he did with Mr Ward's case. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And Arnie Tanya Day has been brought to justice either for Victoria. Yes, you know, and that's another thing. Like, they shouldn't be arresting people for public drunkenness. Like, how stupid is that? Yep. You know, like, look how many wadlers, like, non-Aboriginal people we see drunk on it, on their Australia Day, staggering around the streets. And and on Melbourne Cup Day, all them yorgers there, their women falling over with their skimpy little dresses on at the races. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but yet one, one of our people can be on a train or a public transport or just walking around in the street and we get arrested. And they consider and that unruly, poor you know? and that poor woman and her family have had yeah. to deal oh. with the most horrible grief going because of an dreadful. officer's ignorance. Absolutely dreadful. It's you know, unspeakable. Marianne, we're nearing the end of our show. It is disgusting. Thank you so much for coming onto the program. Always great to yarn with you, sis. It's yeah, great. no, you too, sis. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Yeah, all right, then, no worries. And remember the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. The 30 years is on the 15th of April, so it'll be good to see action right around the country, you know? Show oh, the photos of the government. That, that date onto the show, actually. Yeah, no, no worries. You know me, I'm always up for you. Good on you. Thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Thanks sis, will you take it easy, eh? Catch us. You too. Catch us. Bye. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. Another show has come to an end. Tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And it's goodbye from Marissa. Bye. Stay safe.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.